0: i'm mark caro and welcome to episode 45 of caro pop drummer gilson levis was the longest lasting member of the british band squeeze other than singer-songwriters glenn tilbrook and chris Difford, and he powered the bulk of their best songs from the galloping beat of the debut single take me On yours onward levis brought finesse muscle and a keen sense of groove to Difford and tilbrook's melodic songs he also was a powerful presence live levis already had toured with chuck berry Jerry Lee Lewis and Dolly Parton and has stories about all three by the time he answered a classified ad for a band seeking a drummer. How did Lavis overwhelm the Squeeze guys to get the gig? He also discusses the band's creative process. How Difford, who wrote the lyrics, and Tilbrook, who wrote the music, presented the songs. And how Lavis, the band's most experienced musician, played a key role in arranging them early on. How did John Cale of the Velvet Underground come to produce Squeeze's self-titled debut album? How was that fit? John Wood, who had produced Richard and Linda Thompson, worked with Squeeze on their next two albums, Cool for Cats and R.G. Bargy. The former featured the singles Cool for Cats, which has an interesting origin story. In station, a couple of
1: who swear like, I ask your father, and they very cool for cats, cool for cats
0: and Up the Junction. Levis said certain band members argued for a different song to be chosen as a single instead of Up the Junction, which of course is one of Squeeze's best songs. RG Bargy represented another leap forward, bursting out of the gate with pulling muscles from the shell, and another nail in my heart, both of which may inspire air drumming as you listen to Levis's work. Pinnacle was 1981's East Side Story, produced by Elvis Costello and Roger Besharian, aside from The Driving Quintessence, which Dave Edmonds produced. The original plan was for a double album in which Costello, Edmonds, Nick Lowe, and Paul McCartney each would have produced a side. Why didn't that happen? By this time, extroverted keyboardist Jules Holland had left, replaced by Paul Carrick, who had sung Ace's hit, How Long, and also played with Roxy Music. How did the band change at that point? Carrack took the lead vocal, Untempted, and knocked it out of the park. Did it bother Tilbrook that he didn't sing what became the band's signature song? How did that arrangement with Levis' steady beat come to be? How did the band's dynamic change when Difford and Tilbrook started being compared to Lennon and McCartney? Was the Beatles connection too much when Squeeze hired Beatles engineer Phil McDonald to co-produce the follow-up Sweets from a Stranger? What was it like having yet another keyboardist, Don Snow, in the band? Why was that album considered such a letdown despite many high points? Was Levis one of the bandmates who thought Black Coffee in Bed should be played fast? Master. the one-off single, Annie Get Your Gun, this version of Squeeze broke up. By then, as Levis tells it, his drinking had become so much of a problem that he likely would have been out, even if Difford and Tilbrook hadn't decided to make a go of it as a duo. Levis got sober, drove a cab, and was back in plain shape when the band reformed a few years later, with Jules Holland also in the fold. This Squeeze incarnation scored its biggest hit, Hourglass, but the dynamics were different, and Levis explains how. Levis stayed clean for several years and 4 post reunion albums before he started drinking again, and as he tells it, was kicked out of the band again. This time, when he became sober, it stuck, and he has been playing with his old bandmate in the Jules Holland Rhythm and Blues Orchestra for many years. He also has become an in-demand portrait painter, depicting musicians with whom he has played, such as Amy Winehouse, Smokey Robinson, and Lily Allen. What happened when the MTV show Bands Reunited tried to get Levis and Holland to rejoin Different and Tilbrook? Could he envision ever playing with Squeeze again? Gilson Levis has made much great music and learned a lot over a long, action-packed career. We're lucky to have him sharing his experiences and insights on carol pop. Thank you for doing this. Wonderful to talk to you. My pleasure. What are you doing more of these days, uh, drumming or painting?
1: Uh, well, I'm doing both, actually. If I have any problems, it's I haven't got enough time because I'm still very busy as a drummer. But, right. Um, it's all good, you know, it's all good.
0: How active is uh, Jules Holland's Rhythm and Blues Orchestra right now?
1: Oh, nonstop, really. Yeah, we're, uh, we've just finished a run of shows through the spring and autumn. Uh, which, um, that was about 50 or 60 shows, uh, quite a few back to back, which was, um, which is okay. It was good to get back in the saddle because, as you can imagine, it's been pretty quiet, relatively quiet for, um, for a few years with this COVID insanity, really. But, um, although we did get back on the road somewhat last year, uh, we managed to do uh, some of the the end part of the um, summer tour uh, and the winter tour but uh, but it's still been difficult but no we've been quite very busy this year in fact we finished with a a special gig at the um, they're all special but a particularly special gig at the um, Royal Albert Hall in London which was yeah. a, a benefit for uh, prostate cancer um um, to cure it, not to get it, of course, and um, uh, and it was great because I was there on stage playing drums with everybody they wheeled out in front of me and uh, Paul Weller and all sorts of you know big names in uh, this side of the pond. I don't know about America, but it was um, it was a great show to do. So and that just finished, um, which was the last thing we did on that spring and uh, summer tour. Uh, now I've got a, a day or two, well, I've got a couple of weeks off, and then Jules and myself, we um, we go out as a duo, um, because that's how the rhythm and blues started, uh, the whole thing, how the orchestra started with right. Jules and myself going out as a duo, and um, and occasionally we still do it. We go out as a duo and and play, you know, wherever we get invited to, and we got a we got a tour, we got a, a, a run of shows coming up soon, uh, at the end of this month and during next month. Then there's another couple of weeks off, and then it all starts again with the autumn and winter tour, and we're playing right the way through till Christmas. So well, a lot of stuff, you know, it's good.
0: Have you have you played with Jules Holland's Rhythm and Blues Orchestra longer or done more shows than you did with Squeeze?
1: Um, I think I probably have, yes. Well, well, Jules and I, it started out, as I said, as a duo, and that started over 30 years ago. That was something like 35 years ago. So, and I think Squeeze in its entirety ran for about 20-something years. I think, I don't know. I haven't added it up really much. Yeah,
0: it depends how you count it because there's some off's and on's.
1: So, but yes, I mean Squeeze, of course, is still going in in uh, the Chris and Glenn format. So, but um, yeah, with my input with Squeeze, I would say on and off about twenty years. I grew up in Bedford, uh, uh, and uh, and then my later years. Well, I say later years from about seven to leaving home at fifteen. I lived in Luton, but uh, no Squeeze were formed and and grew uh, from an embryo to a band in South London around Deptford and Greenwich, yeah.
0: Right. So how did you first pick up the drums?
1: Uh, Well, the school band, uh, this is, you know, the uh, secondary school band because I was at secondary school. They had about six or seven lead guitarists but no drummer, and I really wanted to be in the band because I thought – it would stand me in good stead with the girls. But, well, I've got to say, it never did, really. But I did get the job uh, uh, of being a drummer, but I didn't have a drum kit. All I had was a tambourine with the jingles cut off and a couple of my mum's knitting needles. But he mm. got me the job, uh, and then um, and then for the following Christmas, this was when I was about 13, my mum and dad bought me a bass drum and a snare drum and a ride cymbal. And so, yeah, so it's all their fault, really.
0: Were there drummers who you especially idolized at that point?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I suppose once I started to hit that tambourine, something happened. I started to get an interest, a real interest in in drums and drumming. Uh, Yeah, and there were certain drummers that I saw on the television, which was pretty limited in those days, there was a uh, the drummer from the Hollies, Bobby Elliott, that uh, was a good, really good top-class pop drummer uh, that used to do a lot of flashy stuff with his with his sticks. And I really fancied that. Being rather shallow as a human being, I really fancied that um, as a young man. Uh, and then there were. Other drummers, the American drummer I really like. What was his name? Dino Dilletti. And he was fantastic and very good looking too. So Hmm. uh, I found that very impressive. And then there were other drummers, of course, like Keith Moon, uh, British rock drummer that I really rated, and Led Zeppelin, you know, all that stuff that was just mind-boggling. But also I, um, I really enjoyed big band. I was getting into big band drums people like uh Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, Louis Belson. And I actually in my time I I, I met two of those. I never met Gene Krupa unfortunately. But I, I met Buddy Rich in New York and uh, I actually played drums with uh with Louis Belson, um which was a real honor. Uh so um so yeah, I so there we go. And I was this was when I was in my sort of formative years of about 13,
0: 14, 15. It seemed like you always had a really nice sense of groove. And I was sort of wondering if, you know, you also sort of picked up on some of those soul drummers, like, you know, like Al Jackson from Stacks or, you know, Booker oh, yeah, TV, MGs and stuff. Because, I mean, you know, you're playing on quintessence, and that's kind of like a souped up, time <laughs> is tight thing a little bit. And But it makes you, you know, you really want to get moving to that one. That's the one that, you know, my daughters, like every time that comes on, they just crank it up.
1: Oh, that's great! Yeah, well, that's true too. I mean, I was just picking picking names out of a hat, to be honest. Uh, um, but yes, of course, all those fantastic drummers. And you know, um, I, I was really influenced by by uh, American music, of course, by that whole a whole um, wave of soul music and blues music, and um, so yeah, all that influenced me. In fact, through my rather speckled career, I played with lots of different styles of music too. I was in a funk band, I was in a soul band, I was in a country band, I was in a big band, I was in, you know, all sorts of things. And I think that's one of the things that has really helped me in my latter years working with Jules, uh, is because we play with so many different people and different styles of music. Right. And the... uh, it's not like I've had to learn how to do it because I was doing it first time round. I'm that old, but I was doing it <laughs> when it sort of started, you know. So, yeah, so it's all good. It's all good, Mark. You know.
0: Well, I'd read that before you were in Squeeze, you had toured with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis and Dolly Parton.
1: Yeah, and right? Tony Burnett and um, Jerry, yeah, Jerry Lee. I was, um, I was a pickup drummer. Uh, what what that meant? I don't know if you're aware of this. You probably are, but there was a certain time in in uh, in in musical history when, uh, because of um unions, you know, the American Union and the British Union, uh, American artists could only bring over with them a certain amount of musicians, right? And reciprocated the other way too. So British artists going to America only could take a, a certain amount of musicians. Well, there wasn't much traffic going America's way uh, because any any bands going or anything going that way tended to be the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, and um, uh, the Mersey Beats and all those sort of... And they were bands. But artists that were coming over this way tended to be sometimes... Not all the time, tended to be individuals like Dolly Parton, like uh, Jerry Lee, like um, Chuck Berry and Dolly Parton. and So th- they would bring over usually an MD who was also a keyboard player, usually piano, and uh, maybe a guitarist or a, sometimes a drummer, where I wasn't needed, but, uh, you know, a bass player. And, uh, and then they'd pick up the rest of the band. And I was lucky enough to be one of the musicians that was used as a pickup drummer. Also, I worked with a, 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 an agency called, it was Mervyn Conn Agency. Ended up having a bit of a unfortunate reputation, did our Mervyn, but no need to go into that. Um, and he used to um, bring in quite a lot of American artists. And it was through Mervyn that I got to work with, with Chuck and with Jerry Lee and... Um, and the like. Uh, Also, he he used to put on uh, the Country Music uh, Festival. Was it festival or show? Anyway, at Wembley. uh, And I was the house drummer on that, Uh, uh, which is where I worked with Dolly Parton and Tammy Wynette and all those various people because I was the house drummer. Uh, And um, also went on tour, that particular show. So it would go off around Europe, Scandinavia, And I'll be sitting in the back of the bus. In fact, I remember sitting in the back of the bus with Dolly Parton on one trip and with Tammy Wynette on another trip, talking about life, talking about drinking, because I'm a recovering alcoholic. And and I was a bit of a drinker in those days too. So myself and a few of those artists had quite a bit in common.
0: (laughs) Mm. Dolly Parton seems like she would be very pleasant to be around and then it might be kind of challenging to be in Chuck Berry's or Jerry Lee Lewis's band. Was that true?
1: Well, it was very different. Um, With Chuck Berry, I got on very well, although he's definitely a difficult musician, a difficult uh, chap to uh, get on with. I don't suppose I ever got on with him, but I... um, I, Well, you see, uh, during that Chuck Berry time, I was in a relationship with his daughter, Ingrid, and now we're mm. getting into rather <laughs> strange territory. So I was travelling with Chuck and I was staying in the same hotels as Chuck and me and Ingrid were all the best of friends. So, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you know, I saw it from maybe a slightly different point of view, although I talked with him for, for Three or four years. So it wasn't constantly like that. I mean, the first tour, uh, Ingrid didn't, didn't come over with him. It was only on the second tour. Uh so the first tour, yeah, I, I remember. Well, we were playing uh an enormo Dome in um in France, Lyon or something. And a big, big thing, you know, a big several thousand, you know, God knows how many. Uh it seemed an awfully big gig to me then. I mean, i played bigger since, but then it was oh my word! And um, and the previous night, unbeknownst to myself or anybody else, the uh, the tour manager, who was a rather strident, opinionated, bit of a dickhead really, uh, <laughs> had, had thrown out uh, Chuck Berry's European the head of Chuck Berry's European fan club, and he didn't know who he was, and he just ushered him out out the stage door and told him to be away with himself, you know. Anyway, this, of course, um, ticked ticked Chuck off quite a bit. So this next night we were playing Leon, and, and I'm standing at the side of the stage, and Chuck is standing right next to me, like this holding his guitar, you know, as he did looking up at the sky. And I don't know if you know this about Chuck, but he always got paid before he went on stage.
0: Right, in cash.
1: He got half the money before he left America, and then the half of every gig he got in his back pocket before he walked on stage. And um, so I'm standing there right next to Chuck, and uh and and the announcer. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Chuck Berry, and, uh, and Chuck didn't move. And it just didn't move at all. And it all went really sort of quiet. And the audience is cheering. And the bloke said again, ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Berry," And, of course, Chuck didn't move. And so the tour manager in a panic came up to Chuck and said, What's, what, what's going on? You've been announced. Get on there. He said, uh, I get paid in dollars, not in francs. Uh, Well, it's the same thing We can change it in the morning No, the contract says I get paid in dollars Uh, Oh, okay So Chuck put his hand in his pocket And he took out this huge wadge of francs And gave it to the tour manager And said, I want my money in dollars It's in the contract That tour manager had to get in his car, drive into downtown Leon, get a bank manager to open up his bank, change the money into dollars, drive back to the gig and give the money to Chuck. And all the time, Chuck just stood there like that, looking at the ceiling. And I'm standing next to him, shitting bricks. I'm going, oh, oh, no. You know, because this was just, the tension was palpable because the audience by then had gone from cheering to booing. I mean, they were raw, they were getting really, really, really uncomfortable and angry. It was getting serious, you know. Uh, there were fights starting, and it was just, oh lordy, lordy, you know. And it must have oh. been at least 20 minutes, half an hour, just, just. And, and Chuck didn't move. He just, shh. And I'm standing next to him with a pair of drop sticks. he's <laughs> <I'm> really nervous. <laughs> the
0: fact that they'd already introduced him, you know, gets the gets everyone going. It's one thing when it takes a long time for the act to come on anyway, but when they introduce the guy twice and then he's just standing there.
1: I oh, know. And then in the end, he got the money and he just walked out on stage. And of course, the place was a mixture of cheers and boos. And then, uh, but as soon as he started to play, and, uh, (laughs) well, actually, it didn't, because I don't know if you know this about Chuck, in those days, uh, Chuck always wanted to be a crooner. Uh, But, of course, he was a rock and roll. It's strange, isn't it, how people have success in one area, but they crave to have success in another area too. Anyway, he really wanted to be a crooner, so what he would do quite often, almost every night, he'd come out and he'd go into far too many verses of rambling rows. And he'd come out and he'd go boom blink, boom blink, boom clink rambling roll blink boom blink boom clink rambling roll and he'd do this and it'd, and it'd go on and on. And on and on, and the audience at first would just be cheering, you know, because it's Chuck. And then it started to get a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> and then they start, and then they started to really get you know, angry. Uh, and um, uh, would you, as
0: the drummer, know what he was planning to do?
1: He did it most nights, um, at least for one of those tours, if not two. But then, of course, when the audience had almost reached a peak of irritation he
0: will go
1: that'll kick off and that'll be great but you got to remember I was about 17 you know this
0: is good God you know well he would have made an interesting father-in-law
1: oh dear yes yeah absolutely Ingrid was lovely she was such a sweet girl So innocent as well, really. But I I believe she was happily married and settled down and stuff. Yeah, they they were interesting days.
0: And then you... And and Jerry Lee Lewis, was he that colourful as well?
1: I don't know, because um, it was... He was very... um, He was a serious drinker. Serious, serious drinker. Uh, And I don't think through that whole tour... And it was only in, in the UK I, I worked with him. And it was uh, only, I don't know how many dates. I didn't sing that many, 16 maybe dates. Um, I don't think he ever knew my name. He would just sort of, he'd, he'd be announced and then he'd be taken to the side of the stage and just sort of pushed on and he'd, he'd go on and play. But he was great and the audience loved him, you know. But he was very he was seriously handicapped by um mm. by alcohol at the time, you know. And once again, he he went through not the same thing, but a similar thing, because he really it seemed that he really wanted to be a country artist. So he would he would sit down at the piano and then start playing country things, you know. And that would wind the audience up. And then of course he'd go into great walls of fire. And that would be the end of that.
0: Right. So what was your first impression of uh, Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford? And how did that, you know, that part of your life and career happen?
1: I had a music shop in South London. Not in South London, in South End. With uh, uh, several other musicians that um that I worked with for, for many years. In fact, some of them had been doing that uh pick-up musician stuff with me, you know, so so I knew them quite well. And uh and they were from South End. So and I was living down there at the time and we uh, we opened a music shop. Uh more out of optimism than anything else. And it was um a short time later we ran into financial trouble with um it was doing okay, but then the then Prime Minister Ted Heath got into a bit of a fracas with the miners, or with somebody else—I can't remember—and uh, and the country got into really dire situation. And he put the whole country on a three-day working week, uh, and of course there was no money; nobody had any money to do anything, and it, it got really quite dire. And uh, and the and the shop. Uh, stopped trading it when it, it went bankrupt. Uh and I even lost my drum kit because by then uh, we had no financial support and I was and I put my own drum kit in the window to make it look like we still were a music shop. But um it didn't work. And when the bailiffs come they they seized my drum kit. So I didn't even have a drum kit. So um I was pretty I pretty washed up as a drummer. And um, uh, I had no money, of course, and and, uh, and touring had stopped, and it was already crazy. So I went home to live with my mother, um, because my father had died. This is a long-winded explanation, but this is how it happened. Um, my father had died. I don't know, six months earlier. And I died of a heart attack. And um,
0: sorry to hear that.
1: Well, it's a it, oh, long, long while ago now, but, but thank you. In fact, he died when I was just about to go on stage with the Springfields uh, and he died in hospital and the manager of the of the um, Chelmsford, uh, whatever it was, theatre, he came backstage in the dressing room just before he we went on stage and said, Gilson, I've got some bad news. You, we just heard your father's died. Gave me a large whiskey and said, "Have a good show." And oh I, my God! You know, oh dear. anyway, oh God, showbiz, quit showbiz, me never. Anyway, um, so there I was. I went home. No, I went went to live with my mum. No drunk, it no anything, and um, and I got a job in the, uh, I've always worked, even even when I haven't been drumming, I've been doing something, and I got a job stacking bricks in a brickyard, in a, in a the London brick company that make bricks, building bricks, you know, red bricks. And I was working in the kilns after they'd been fired, stacking them and putting them into stacks so that a forklift truck could pick them up and put them on a lorry. Uh, and, God, that was tough work, bending over all day. I was using rubber things cut out of inner tubes on my hands to pick up these bricks, and after doing, trying to earn some money, you know, and after doing this for about six months, my hands were in this permanent sort of claw shape, and I thought, well, you know, if I were to be a drummer, this really isn't the best move, you know. Uh, So I I went to my long-suffering mum, God bless her, and I said, "Uh, no, I can't do this anymore. I need to get back to playing the drums, but I need a drum kit. And um and God bless her cotton socks. She bought me a drum kit out of my dad's insurance money when he died. Uh and she and she asked me what kit I wanted. And of course, being a complete dickhead and an arsehole, I chose a Ludwig Octoplus kit, which is just ridiculous. Huge drum kit with eight. Single-headed tom toms and double bass drum. Oh, just oh god, crazy! Yeah. But you know, I was an nutcase in those days. I didn't. It's no excuse, I suppose, but I was an nutcase. And so I, I started to uh, practice a bit in my mum's front room on this huge, great. And she lived in a bungalow, a single-story little thing. In Bedford. And I I was (laughs) playing on this huge kit and I was slowly getting my chops together again, you know. And then there was this little advert in the Melody Maker, which is a music paper in England. Oh, yeah. And it was a tiny little advert. It wasn't even a box ad. It was just a little ad. South London Band Looking for a Drummer. Uh, No, South London Band with Manager Looking for a Drummer.
0: No description of the music or anything.
1: No, 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 just that. Uh, so I phoned up and uh, I got an audition. Uh, so I took the front seat or front passenger seat out of my mum's mini and I put all this drum kit in, in there and I drove down to London, which is about sort of 70 miles from Bedford, drove down to South London and there and there they were in, in this underground room in a swimming pool in Greenwich, and there was Jules and there was uh, Glenn, Chris and Harry Cooley all in there. And uh, and I started to bring in this huge drum kit and set it up, which okay. took up about half the room, you know, this crappy thing. And I think they'd been auditioning uh, quite a few drummers, but I think I was the first one to actually turn up with with a seriously big drum kit and and able to play a bit, you know, actually be able to play the drums. <laughs> Cause I've been a professional drummer for 10 years already, you know. So um so I got the job. And uh and little did they know the how little I knew. And uh and so that's how I got the job and we started to play South London Pubs and clubs, and I got paid fifteen pound a week. And Miles Clopton was the was the manager. And, uh, and after about a couple of years of that, no less than that, we made our first first record, which was Packet of Three. And um, in fact, if you look at really really early photos of Squeeze, you'll see all the band apart from me look quite sort of street grid. I still look like a cabaret artist. Yeah, <laughs> and a smart jacket. Because that's, that's all I'd ever done. But, um, well, I and, then that,
0: and, and then that first album was produced by John Cale, which was an interesting combination.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think the uh, manager, Miles Copeland, he, he was um interesting chap. I mean, you know, been a millionaire and broke three or four times, you know. Up and down, up and down, and um, he was um, he was very incisive in a lot of ways, and street, street credibility was one of the ways um, that he was very um, intuitive, and I think he he realised that um, that a band, a new band, that had a promote uh, had a producer of the ilk of uh, Velvet Underground, you know, that hugely credible band would do nothing but uh, help us. I mean, it was, certainly would be a hindrance. And um, and it did. I mean, he was an interesting chap. I've worked with him since, actually, but not that long ago, a few years ago, he came on the tally when we were doing one of these New Year's Eve special things we do every year. and um, And he came on as one of the guests. So I've met him since, but he was really quite radical, you know. In fact, he got slightly annoyed with with my (laughs) drumming because it was a bit too, what was the word he used? It was a bit too professional. It was a bit too um, technically proficient for him. So what he got me to do... You were
0: no Mo Tucker.
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So what he got me to do is he taped two drumsticks... In each of my hands, so I had four sticks, and he gaffer them in place. So now I'm playing like this with four sticks around the kit, hopefully to make me sound like I don't know. I just bought the drum kit, maybe I don't know, but huh. um, but that's you know, it was lunatic really, but it was really uh, invented too.
0: Did was- Did he get on with the band like we're we're dif- different until Brooke sort of? Pleased with whatever he was doing as a producer.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think he was. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I, I think we all got on with him. He was a, he was a good lad. He was very interesting. He was very. Um, God, it's a long time ago now, mate. I mean, it's we going back to when I was twenty-five. You know, fuck's sake. right. Uh, but um, yeah, but he was he was an incredibly interesting chap. It was uh, it was um, John that that. Suggested to Chris that he stop writing lyrics, the lovey-dovey lyrics, and start writing about things that were in his life that he had to himself. Mm. And that really opened a door to Chris because then his his lyric writing really turned a corner. Right, started to write, you know, truly amazing lyrics, uh, individual uh, lyrics, remarkable lyrics, really. I'm still amazed by them. You know, he can one of his lyrics would encu- encope, encapsulate someone's life from birth to death, and he'd managed to do it in three minutes. And then he'd also managed to write a lyric that was about one second in time and make it last three minutes. Right. So just that sort of level of of imagination. Really remarkable stuff, you know
0: So would the two of them come to you With sort of a finished demo of a song? I know that, that Chris would write the lyrics Glenn would write the music And then I guess you you all would get, get the song at that point?
1: Uh, well, yes and no In the early days uh, It was Glenn just playing an acoustic guitar uh, Guitar, acoustic Singing some lyrics He did have the melody, more or less, though it did change. And then the band would arrange it. In fact, in those early days, I did a lot of the arranging because I'd had quite a bit more experience with um, working in in the music industry than anybody else in in Squeeze. And uh, I've always had a pretty reasonable ear for music, you know, what works and what doesn't so so I I was actually the probably the main arranger of uh, squeeze songs uh for the first two maybe even three albums huh but then the the longer we went on the more uh defined uh Glenn's demos became and the more we as a band tried to. Or it would, it became uh, required that we almost emulate the, the demos rather than create something different, you know. And that made it a bit harder, actually.
0: So Take Me, I'm Yours was the first, that was off the first album. And it was kind of the first hit, the first single that people, a lot of people know. And it's really kind of driven by that drum part. Like that beat is very... Distinct yeah. in it That kind of galloping thing Is that something you came up with When they presented the demo Or was that there to begin it with? Was.
1: Yeah, it was It was um, What had happened uh, we, <coughs> We'd done a, an album
0: Yeah, it was called UK Squeeze Here
1: Yeah, UK Squeeze, yeah That's right It's um, uh, Yeah, what happened was That we delivered the album And a Records didn't think There was a single on it Although they loved the album they didn't think there was a single. So they sent us in the studio to deliberately record a single. And Glenn had this Take Me On you, Your Track. And so uh, it started with uh, this really old, I'll say now it's old, but then it was probably quite new, this drum machine with, with buttons on the front. You just press. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of really basic drum pattern thing. And so they put down this sort of, the start of this track with this real basic thing on it. And then they asked me to go and put some drums on. So that's when I went out there and did that. That sort of cross between a tango and a, I don't know what, um, I was going to say Talking Heads, but actually, that <laughs> Talking Heads came later, so it wasn't like Talking Heads. But anyway, you know what I mean,
0: right? Um, and I know a Talking Heads song you're, you're talking about too, because it starts off more songs about buildings and than food. Thank you uh, for sending me an angel. Yeah, no, you you had the galloping thing first.
1: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I did that. I'm responsible.
0: So and then Cool for Cats was the second album, and John Wood produced that and Argy Bargy. You guys went through a lot of producers, I noticed, but but he was John Wood, someone who I know from I mean, it was sort of in retrospect because I didn't know when it was coming out, but he'd produced those early Richard and Linda Thompson albums like I Wanna See the Bright Lights Tonight, and then he was working with you guys. Um did he have a different uh, you know, influence on your your music or was it? He just sort of, you know, helping you guys along, and you guys were discovering it on your own.
1: No, I think by then we were actually more or less sort of producing ourselves, with um, with maybe uh, uh, John Wood having the the casting vote would best describe it. So yeah, I think we were sort of producing ourselves. But when we when when we came back after that break, you know when squeezed, disbanded and right. went, went off and did their own thing. When we came back, that's when we started to use producers because I think producers then had become rather hip. You know, having a hip producer became the thing to have, you know. Uh So I think we were once again pushed into that by the record company.
0: Yeah, I think that Cool for Cats and RG Bargy are both produced by John wood and squeeze or by squeeze and John wood so and there and those those albums don't sound particularly similar either because because cool for cats is a little more sort of synthy electronic stuff going on and then rg Bargy is more kind of straight ahead guitar piano um yeah, that's I
1: mean, right well I don't why why this is maybe because we'd spent a long time touring you know, in those early days, we were we were virgins more or less. So you know, we uh, we'd made a, um, an EP, and then we made that album, and then we did Call for Cats, and um, uh, and then we toured, we toured and toured and toured. So uh, so I think we got used to playing as a unit rather than uh, playing in a studio. Until then, the balance between live work and studio, it was quite a lot of studio and not a huge amount of live. Well, there was a lot, but not. But then we toured and toured and toured and did endless tours of America and Australia and Europe. And and we really really toured the arse out of it. You know, we played hundreds and hundreds of live shows. So I think that's reflected maybe in in the in the actual sound of the band and how how we worked as a band you know
0: when when they were coming in with the songs for cool for cats did you did you think oh these are these guys are getting a lot better and and the same thing for argy bargy
1: did I think that i'm not sure i ever did no i just dealt with what was in front of me i you know i was still a drinker in those days so i was taking everything on life i was taking on surface Values. I was very, um, I was a relatively shallow human being, I suppose. But I, what I could do was play the drums and put on a show, and have some musical nouse um, about me. But every other part of my character was 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 drenched in alcohol, you know. So no, I mean, I can't honestly say I thought about anything much. Uh, any and any thoughts I had were usually. Uh, how do I get out of that last mess? Or <laughs> huh. how, how do I say sorry for that catastrophe? Or oh shit, have I got to apologise to today? You know, so that was what was going on in those days. But, um, but I, my God, I was a pretty good drummer. I was a very good live as well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it was real, real energy and 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 show and all sorts of stuff going on. You know, I'd, there was a certain je ne going on in those days, even though I was, um, I was getting towards, not then completely, it was later on, but I was edging towards being a shuffling drunk. But there was a period when I was, you know, I was performing quite well, you know. I'm, I'm a different person now and a different drummer. Yeah. But, but I can look back on that sometimes I think, oh, that wasn't bad, you know. (laughs) I might not have been a very productive human being, but I can now play the drums.
0: (laughs) I have this deluxe edition of Argy Bargy, and it has a separate disc of a live concert. And yeah, you guys were a hot band. Like, like I've gone back and listened to that, and it sounds really, really good and energetic. And, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I want to sort of go back into that show and be standing by the stage for it.
1: Oh no, yeah Yeah, it was uh, We were pretty energetic Yeah, we were good But, you know, things You know, it was just Same old, same old, really
0: You, Do know, you we know,
1: we were Our greatest asset And our worst enemy At the same time You know, that's That's,
0: that's showbiz Now, was that true? I mean, you're, you're describing Yourself as that I mean, Chris Difford's Obviously written a lot about Drinking and struggles With alcohol as well I mean, was that something That the whole band was was Going on, or was there sort of a split between people who were drinking a lot and people who weren't? Or,
1: no, I think, um, I don't think there was anybody in the band that was, um, bothered about it. No, everybody drank, and and, and I think I just took it to extreme, you know. But, um, I think the difference between me and the rest of the band is that I didn't have an off switch, whereas uh, most of the band did, though occasionally I misplaced it. I some perfume, over you. But it's not my conscience that hates to be untrue. I ask my reflection, tell me what is there to do.
0: Do you remember any songs that they brought in and you thought, oh wow, this is a great song? Or oh wow, this sounds like it's a hit single or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course it was. Tempted was one of them. Um, and uh muscles from a shell was another one that was just stood out. Um, Call for cats didn't in particular, particularly because it, 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 it um, that sort of was created in the studio really. Um, uh, Glenn, I think just had an idea for a, for a, a sort of melody and a chord change and then it all happened in the studio. Even even Chris wrote the lyrics in, in the studio, so no, that it doesn't apply to that. But up the junction was another one that really, yeah, you know, just with the quality of the lyrics, you know, and, and the, the remarkable uh, structure because that's a song with no chorus, you know. It's, right. and, it's the, <laughs> and you know, and I remember the the record company saying because we just had a, a huge hit with Call for Cats. And they were saying, oh, Up the Junction should be the next next single. I remember, although it's been um, contested since, I'm pretty sure I remember it accurately, which is um, a lot of the band wanted It's Not Cricket as the next single. And even the record company was saying they want that, but it never sounded like a... It's single to me. It was a a quirky, interesting song that was 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 okay. It was pretty good, but uh, up the junction just really stood out as being
0: yeah
1: a unique piece of artwork really. Uh, and so I was pushing for up the junction. Although I've got to say, since then, in fact, Chris and Glenn have claimed <laughs> that they're the ones that push for it. But they no, no, they didn't.
0: Huh. <laughs> there we go and there's and there's a video for uh, up the junction too where where everyone's sort of miming playing the wrong instrument so Glenn's on drums you're like in the back on bass or guitar or something and everyone's everyone's playing something different than they actually play on the record
1: yeah i know that was us just being childish it's actually from <laughs> top of the pops from top of the pops and um, and that was glenn's idea because i think he wanted to show off his drumming ability so he um so he sat behind my kit and I played the bass I can't really play bass so I mind the bass uh and um yeah it was all it was all a bit silly in fact in retrospect it was a bit um a little bit cheesy you know but there we go it is what it is huh. uh, but the actual um the video for it the the one that was shot for it was actually done on the same day as we did Call for Cats. And it was done in the, um, the kitchen of, was it George Harrison's house? I think it was. Really? Yeah, the um, Call for Cats was shot in the church, in the, in the chapel in George Harrison's house. And, uh, and then we, they wanted uh, a video for Up the Junction and we just moved the gear into the kitchen and then shot it in the kitchen in one take, you know, real, real cobbled together. But it's got a certain charm about it that I quite like. And the two girls that were the backing singers and call for cats were at the back of that video making a cup of tea. Which is hmm. nice.
0: <laughs> well, what were you doing at George Harrison's house?
1: Filming a video.
0: But like how, like, how does that happen?
1: Uh, I I think, I don't know, somebody knew George. I mean, we all all knew George in the end. He worked worked with the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra quite a bit. In fact, the last record George recorded was with us before he passed away. Well,
0: i would read somewhere that for East Side Story, the original plan was to do a double album in which you'd have four producers, Paul McCartney, Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds and Elvis Costello. Is that... Right? and I mean, it ended up being Edmonds producing *In Quintessence*, and then Costello and Roger Bakurian, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, doing the rest of the album. But do you remember this grandiose plan of having, you know, Paul McCartney and Nick Lowe and everyone do a side?
1: Yeah, I do remember it being discussed. Uh, but that was all that happened, really. Um, it was just discussed. But um, really, it was Elvis really produced that. Elvis and squeeze once again, you know. So um, yeah, I, I don't think it was ever gonna. It was our idea, but nobody else. I mean, uh, Paul McCartney never knew. I don't think we ever. <laughs> asked, you know, so <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I do remember that. But,
0: uh, how did uh, Dave Edmonds just end up producing that one song?
1: Because we went into um, went into a studio that Dave Edmonds used a lot. Uh, uh to to cut a track because we were in in between I can't remember we were in between um albums and we we could do with a single or something and so we went in the studio and did this one day's recording with uh with Dave Edmonds um but it never got used as a single but it did get used on the album so it it was it was done probably before we did the album, I should think.
0: Hmm. And then in the meantime, John Bentley had replaced Harry Kukuli on bass, and that then
1: was quite early on, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so he, so he was on uh, Argy Bargy. And I think John Kukuli was on Cool for Cats. Yeah. And, uh, and then um, and then Jules left, and then Paul Kerr came in for East Side Story.
1: Yeah.
0: How much did those changes affect the band dynamic?
1: It did it did affect it quite quite a bit because um you know Jules is a big character, you know, and he's um he's always been destined for great things, really. A unique person. And um that was you know, that was like a light on in the corner of the room, constantly burning, you know, uh shining a light on things. And it, it was great. But when he went, of course the light went off, but a different light came on, and that was uh you know, with Paul and his incredible voice and his uh, and his keyboard playing, which was much more sort of rock and pop orientated, whereas Jules, of course, is the boogie woogie king. Right. So, you know, so obviously, so they were the changes. But Paul, you know, is a professional musician, and and he really fitted in really well. You know, uh, I still see Paul. He's worked with us quite a bit too. I you know. I see Paul now and again, and we're still really good chums. You know, I love him. He's a remarkable chap. In fact, his son now is playing drums with Paul on tour, and he's a really good drummer. Mm. You know?
0: so. Yeah, no, he'd he'd been an ace. So he'd had he'd sung "How Long," which was a big hit. You yeah. know, in the U.S. I mean, I remember that on AM radio here, and then he was in Roxy Music, or you know, playing yeah. on those albums and touring with them as well. So, so he came in as a very seasoned musician into Squeeze. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he did indeed. Yeah, we were just you know a part of Paul's musical career. You know, he uh, after he left us, he went and went on and played with um, Rutherford. What's his name? Oh, you know,
0: Mike Rutherford.
1: Mike Rutherford. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was in that outfit for quite a while. And Then of course, then his solo now.
0: So. I was I was in London the summer of '84, and I saw Nick Lowe in his cowboy outfit playing a bar. And I think Putney and Paul Carrick was the, he was the keyboard player and singing in that one as well. So, and then he had a solo album that Nick Lowe produced around then. So he was busy.
1: Never stopped. Still going, never stops. Professional musician of the highest caliber. Absolutely.
0: So do you remember the evolution of Tempted? Like, was it always like, here's a song, we're going to have Paul sing this one or... How did that one come about? And was the arrangement always the arrangement that we heard or did that, was that something where maybe, I thought I'd heard years ago that, you know, Elvis had suggested slowing it down, but then I haven't really found that when I've looked it up. So what's the story behind Tempted?
1: Uh, Well, as best I can remember, the arrangement uh, has always been the same, but the speed was something that varied. In fact, it varied a lot on stage as well. Um, you know, sometimes we played it quite fast, other times it was slow, sometimes it was even dirgy, I think. So um uh but no, the arrangement was always there. I think um yeah, it was Elvis that suggested uh that Paul sing it. And of course when he sang it, it was undeniable. But I think it was um it did get up Glenn's nose a little bit retrospectively.
0: I've always wondered about that.
1: Because it it was such a uh, is the word seminal? I don't know. It was such a, iconic, it's a bit strong. So if there's another one. No, word, it's a
0: huge hit though. It's a, it's a lasting, it's absolutely. a classic.
1: It's a classic, you know. So I think Glenn would have really liked to have sung it in retrospect, but there you go. Nobody has everything they want, do they?
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, the first side of that album is very, The it seems very consciously like a vocal mix where you have, Glenn and Chris singing "Quintessence" together, and then Chris is singing "Someone Else's Heart," which actually Glenn had sung on a version for recorded for RG Bargy. Says what was what happens when you get the deluxe editions and you get these outtakes.
1: And they never asked me to sing one. <laughs> <what
0: happened. laughs> would you have?
1: Yeah, I would have done. Well, I used to be a singer way back. I couldn't do it now. Ever since I had COVID, my my voice is shot and my breathing shot. As you can hear, I keep running out of breath. Bloody COVID! Sorry. Never- well, you know, I was really poorly. ICU. see Oh, man. Yeah, I was really ill. It was in the early days when there was no treatment or vaccine or anything, you know. But there we go. Um, but, yeah, I used to be a singer. I used to used to go around singing and uh, I was the lead singer in a band for a while. So I would have sung, but nobody asked me. But I don't <laughs> mind. It, well, you see, I was a bit more of a, a Matt Munro crooner rather than, you know, rock and roll singer. So I never took me seriously at all. You know, I used to sing like I dressed.
0: What was it like uh, working with Elvis Costello on that album? Was he very involved in the sound of it?
1: Yeah, he was very involved in all of it. Yeah, he was really, really good. He's a very, very intelligent, uh, musically-minded chap with um, strong opinions and... Uh, very open-minded. Yeah, you know, it was really good. It was really good. Um, something I really remember about that: we were recording it, uh, it and uh, near the end of recording was the day John Lennon was shot, and that really changed the atmosphere in the in the studio and in in life. I think everybody was really right, shot. and I think that that sort of continued to the end of the album, really. Not, not that, you know, it affected the recordings too much, There's certainly the ambience, you know, it was, it was such a mind thing.
0: So East Side Story came out, Tempted's a hit. Everyone's, you know, proclaiming Difford and Tilbrook to be the new Lennon and McCartney. There's a lot of hype around it. Um, and then you guys went to do Sweets from a Stranger. Uh, you worked with Phil McDonald, who had engineered for the Beatles, do you remember sort of what the thinking was on that album? And, you know, was it like, oh, we're going to raise the up the ante even more or, or how did everyone approach that? It seemed Because it seems like that turned out to be sort of a difficult record for everyone.
1: It was a difficult record. I think it was one of those. Um, uh, by this time, you know, Glenn was definitely in control of the band and he was controlling decisions and arrangements and and um, and uh um, we we'd probably by then really turned into yes men. Uh, and I think um, Glenn and probably the rest of us were influenced by his track record as an engineer uh, and, you know and that and maybe Chris and Glenn have been affected by the Lennon and McCartney stuff that would come in their way. Um, in fact, in, in hindsight, it was pretty damaging because it played into their own uh, personal uh, idea of reality that wasn't strictly true, I think. but um, uh, So I think that's what happened. And almost immediately, we started to work with him. Uh, we sort of realised it, it wasn't the right decision. He was so... Um, you could almost hear when he was um, using a uh, Beatles album uh, track he worked on, using it as a reference point to a squeeze recording. You could almost hear it. You know, it was um, it became really quite uh, sort of obvious. And um,
0: like, what was an example of that?
1: Oh, I can't remember now. But I remember us talking about it uh, as a band and Glenn making fun of it too. Um, It was actually Glenn that pointed it out, saying you could almost reference the Beatles song he's using on this one. Um, So, no, you'll have to ask Glenn. But, no, I couldn't tell you. But, um, uh, but yeah, it wasn't particularly successful, and the band was um, finding life a bit uncomfortable. We were touring relentlessly and recording relentlessly, and I was drinking relentlessly. And uh, and and Chris and Glenn were getting all sorts of offers and stuff going on. So I think um, uh, the trip to the mausoleum was on the cards, you know? So I think, yeah, although the Sweets from a Stranger does have some moments, I think, that are really quite good and quite memorable. But uh, somewhere along the line, We sort of lost the plot, really. Those cheeky South London boys somehow somehow lost their way uh, and became rather sardonic, uh, miserable touring musicians, just like many other miserable touring musicians.
0: So Paul Carrick had left after just the one album and singing the hit, and then Don Snow came in, so he had another new keyboardist. Did that change things up also?
1: Yeah, it did really. Yeah, I, I, um, I, uh, yeah, Jon Snow was a, was a Glenn Tilbrook, um, idea. And he did, it did sort of change it up. It was, um, Don Snow in, reminded me of how I used to be when I first came into Squeeze. You know, after spending 10 years working as a pickup drummer. Uh, doing some session work, you know, making pop records in, in the studio and 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 having a, a quite radical um, cabaret sort of um, experience where I'd done a lot of, you know, work putting on a suit and a bow tie and going out. Uh, and so that was who I was when I joined Squeeze. But after, you know, a year or two, I soon shed the shackles of that misconception of what music was. And I I became um, more, I suppose more the person I am now, but certainly uh, a more edgy, radical, and um, powerful musician, hopefully uh, not somebody that was trying to follow in other people's tracks or emulate other people. As somebody who was trying to create music of of my own, obviously with with other people in the band, but I mean, you know, as a as a working musician, having an identity. And when when and when John came into the band, I think he came in with that old sort of attitude that I had, which he had been so used to playing for other people that that's. What he was doing then, and he he did play for Glenn. He did play what Glenn wanted, the way Glenn wanted, and he, very very confident. You know, a good singer and a good keyboardist. Anyway, my idea of reality was getting pretty twisted by then. So yeah. I, I'm probably not a good judge. <laughs> I don't want to cast aspersions either, because you know he's he's had a he's had a really good career and he's still working and. God bless him. It's a lovely chat too, you know, but it was, that, and you asked me about the initial impression. Right. That's what it was. Really.
0: Well, and again, it's like every, every album has at least one shift in personnel. Like it's very, I don't know if, I don't know if there are two albums of that first phase of Squeeze, which, you know, those first five albums where you had the same people on every album. I don't think, I don't think there was one. Um, and then so so black coffee in bed, was there like a fight over black coffee in bed and how fast that one should be?
1: Well, I'm not sure a fight's the right word, but there certainly was discussions. Um
0: disagreement.
1: Yeah, dis disagreements maybe. You know, it always sounded like a almost like a tabloid stack sort of song that needed a bit of energy going on, but um but I think it was pulled back and became a more of a Reverend, what's his name? You know, I'm bad on names, getting old.
0: Like Al Green?
1: Yeah, Al Green. It became a a Reverend Al Green, who I've also worked with. I worked with all these people. Yeah. Wow. I worked with, yeah, Reverend Al Green. He came and did a TV show. Remarkable man, dear
0: me. I remember when you guys would play Black Coffee in Bed in the sort of next phase of, you know, after the breakup and getting back together, and you played it in the faster. Yeah. faster tempo, which which I honestly I liked more. I I, I always liked Black Coffee in Bed, but it, I never understood why it was needed to be six minutes long, and I felt like it just needed a little more of a pick-me-up, but...
1: You're right, no, you were absolutely right, and that was part of the argument. It needed editing and speeding up. It could have been, I think, you know, a, a, an iconic track for Squeeze, you know, because it had that lovely different lyric, you know, that well, like what we were talking about earlier with this sort of strange take on the world, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. There's some some of that album I really like a lot. You know, I it's it's a it's a mixed record, but I think it it's almost a little underrated at this point. Um you have some interest in drumming on not even but very energetic drumming on Stranger Than the Stranger on the Shore. Mm. That's got a lot going on. Um Points of View has that sort of Soulful, not quite tempted thing, thing happening, um, and then you had Annie get your gun right after that. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: the one-off thing that uh, we did in the studio, and that was once again a, a strange thing. Who was the producer on that?
0: It was Alan Tarney. Yeah, I'll there that's you go,
1: Alan Tarney, uh, who who had just about the whole thing programmed up by the time we got to the studio. We turned up to record it, and he pressed play. And it just sort of there it was, you know, uh, which wasn't squeeze at all, really. Uh, uh, but he did ask me, do you think, I still remember, do you think you can go and play the drums along with that? Cheeky bastard. So I did. And I just won't take and I did it, you know. Uh, so I added a bit of life and then did some guitar work on it. But, yeah, it was Alan Taney who created that, really, that whole track. And it was very odd.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you guys have been around for so long and we're such a seasoned band that to have a producer come in and say, Here's the track is sort of a that's sort of an odd thing to happen to you at that point.
1: It was, it was very odd. But I but I thought, you know, maybe it fed into our egos or or Chris and Glenn's egos that somebody would take all that time and trouble to work on one of their songs, you know. Because huh. they went for it, you know. But, but there we go, it's all right, you know.
0: What was the end of that? Band. Like the, the, that band broke up And then they did their Different until record How did that happen?
1: They just called a band meeting and said We're breaking the band up And um, uh, I think there were I don't know, you have to ask them for the actual reasons But I think some of the reason was my drinking Some of the reasons were Chris and Glenn believing some of the press stuff going on. Also, the pressure of recording and touring and the disappointment of and A Stranger losing the of well, maybe losing some of the squeeze magic. Um, and I think Chris and Gern have been receiving offers, you know. And, um, and But, you know, we have been living in each other's pockets for several years by then. So probably pleased to see the back of us Uh, in retrospect. It should have been a hiatus where we just went our separate ways for for six months, nine months, a year maybe, and then tried again. But I think Chris and Glenn were determined to to have a shot of a, how do you say a solo career when it's a duo?
0: Right, a a duo career.
1: A a duo career. So I, I think they were determined to have a shot at that. But, uh, but it didn't really work. You know, they didn't get the sales they were hoping for. You know, the, the name Different and Tilbrook wasn't as recognisable as the name Squeeze, unfortunately, for them. So um, it didn't really happen. I know it was a very good album. I mean, it was very competent and very well produced, but it was different. Right. So, um, um, and then, of course, um, after a year... I got sober, and um, and Chris and Glenn, or Glenn phoned me up and asked me I wanted to come and play with them again, so after a year of that stuff, of me driving a minicab in South London, <laughs> oh Madison Square Garden, driving a minicab two weeks later. Anyway, there we go. Wow. Oh, well, there we go, showbiz. No, that's alcoholism, actually.
0: But uh, you got you got sober and took care of yourself during this time.
1: Well, yeah, I did get sober, I stopped drinking, thankfully. And um, yeah, and that and so it all went off again. We had more, another hit record, whatever that was. What was it, Hourglass? And,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, and started touring again, going around the world, doing it all again. Uh, and I did it sober. Uh, the rest of the band, of course, was still living the rock, rock and roll dream. But I was sitting up in the front of the tour bus with the driver Stone cold sober. <laughs> Those are the days. Did that for eight years. She
0: won't have that behavior in her house anymore. He's got to sober up or be kicked out of the door. So the reunited squeeze had Jules back. Yeah. And you back, uh, and then Keith Wilkinson, so yet another new bassist, who was the one who played on the different Tilbrook record, um, and that and Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity. That album, which was produced by Laurie Latham, is definitely a more kind of electronic. Like it doesn't sound like one of the pre-breakup records. It's much more electronic sounding. What was your What was your thought on that when you were doing it?
1: Glenn had said by then that he was. Um, going to let go of the reins of Steering Squeeze and um, and take a back seat and just have as much say in the band as everybody else hmm. um, and, uh, and listen to the producer. And uh, at that moment in time, Laurie Latham was one of the hot producers. He's just produced um, a couple of Paul Young hits and he'd also produced Fine Young Cannibal Hits. A couple of hits, so it was a relatively hot property, but it was it was difficult because he he really worked piecemeal. You know, he worked one instrument at a time, um, tracking and double tracking, and um, you know breaking down drum beats to to their their individual drum hit. You know, really. Right. Really, just not, not not the sort of thing I was, I was sort of used to. And also, he really affected the way I played the drums. He, he considered anything I did that was slightly, um, um I don't know, technical is the right word, but slightly, you know, a bit more than boom splat, boom splat, or basic, you know, drums. You know, that was anything more than that. He called it "Stop doing those circus tricks," uh, because he he had an idea of what what a pop record would sound like. So, uh, yeah, so it was really different, and we were all tiptoeing around each other. You know, that um, early days, we all wanted this to work, and, and we were all sort of being as friendly as we could. And I was, I was you know, not drinking and being sober. Unfortunately, you know, just being sober for a year doesn't mean to say my my attitude and thinking have particularly changed. I was still more or less the same person, just not drinking, which means um, I wasn't getting into so much trouble. I wasn't getting into fights, crashing cars and doing all the really crazy stuff and <laughs> really, really crazy stuff. But uh, I was still... Pretty um, confused, emotionally and mentally, you know. So, mm. um, so um, yeah, I was just going along with what anybody wanted, really. Just to, I was pleased not to be driving a minicab and to be back sitting behind a drum kit, you know. So yeah, uh, but of course there was a hit. We did have a, a hit with Hourglass,
0: right? Uh, yeah, the next album, Babylon and On, then which uh, E.T. Thorngren. Produced with Glenn, um, yeah. and that was uh, that one was more. Yeah, Hourglass, a great single, and Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity. I remember it coming out, and I was really turned off by the sound of it because I just sort of liked things that sounded more organic, and it sounded very processed to me. Um, yeah. Yet, yet when I go, yet it's actually now I go back to more than I would have expected because actually the songs are are very good, and I've kind of gotten used to. The other stuff but something like King George Street is you know as good as anything on any of yeah, those records
1: yes it, it is well well forgive me for saying what you're thinking but I think what's happened is that you've gone back to the songwriting right which has always been undeniable what what changed was the actual recordings uh you know the the way we re uh, way we uh played or gave voice to Chris and Glenn's songs. Uh, and I don't think we did them justice uh, with cozy. I, I think it was, it, their, their songs were put through uh, a, a strainer of technical mishmash of, um uh, I don't know, maybe a, a producer who... Um, being uh, stamping too much of his own authority, great right. music is rather than looking and hearing what squeeze is and making the most of that. And I think that's where the, the, the problem was. Uh, it certainly wasn't with the problem, wasn't with the songs, the problem was with the production. So when right. you go back to it, I think you're hearing the songs and ignoring the production. Which is probably the
0: wise thing to do, right? And then you have Babylon and on and Frank, and basically those albums, those three, those three albums have the basic core. Five of you, I think there was maybe a keyboardist, an extra keyboardist that came in and out, but it seemed like it was actually sort of a stable period for you, and that you had you know you and Jules and Keith Wilkinson and Glenn and Chris. Like you you hadn't actually had the same five people on two straight albums, not never mind three straight albums up till that point.
1: That's true, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was more stable. Maybe we were more mature, and maybe we had a a better idea of, of our place in the universe. Of course, as you can tell by what you just said, uh, Glenda once again sees the rain reigns. Uh, his taking a backseat only lasted for that one album. And once again, he was he he was in control, and, um, and then it, it was difficult. I mean, I think I was at times just hanging on because I I wanted to still be in the music business, and then of course what happened was um, at the end of those three albums, um, my marriage broke up, and I picked up a drink, and I was immediately sacked again. So being sacked twice from the same band is pretty is pretty good achievement. But that's when uh I I moved out of London, moved in, up to Lincolnshire, which is where I live now. I've been living here for over 30 years. Once again I got sober, thankfully the diet after that particular slip. And that's when that's when jewels and my Jewel. The, the rhythm and blues orchestra started started with Jules and Gilson and went on to be what it is now. So I never did quit the music business. I'm still going and I'm still sober. After right. 30 odd years now, 35 years or something. So yeah, now I really am a different person from that person.
0: I saw this show I think it was on MTV Called Bands Reunited Where they were trying To reunite Squeeze sometime And they finally found You and Jules You know Playing with the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra And and the two of you Were like Yeah no thank you And it was sort of This, this It's, just, it's just, The whole thing Was was about Reuniting Squeeze And then in the end They're like Well we didn't Reunite Squeeze
1: Oh no Well if I remember He burst into the, the, the Rehearsal room Went up to Julian and say we're the bands reunited. We're trying to get squeezed together for a gig. How do you feel about it? And I think Julian said, well, is there any money in it? Uh, and um, and he said, well, I don't think so. Uh, he said, well, no, then. And then he, he looked at me and said, are you keen? And I said, i go where Julian goes.
0: And right.
1: That was, that
0: was it. Would you all play together again for if the circumstances were right?
1: Uh, Chris actually sits in with the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra quite regularly. In fact, he did that Albert Hall show that I was t- talking about. So he, right. he gets on stage and we do a couple of Squeeze songs. We do Take Me On um, The Call For Cats, and maybe we'll do Up The Junction and things. You know, it always goes down well. And when he does that, there's actually three original members of Squeeze on stage, which is more than there is. When Squeeze is on stage, because then there's only That's two. That's true. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so, would uh, you would you do it if if Glenn and Chris said, "Hey, we just want to do this one last tour, of the original five members, or something like that"? Or I don't know what 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 original five members those would be, but but you would certainly be in whatever classic lineup there would be. Would you if if, if it was you and Jules? Would you do it?
1: I probably yeah, I probably would would do it, but. Um, I, it had never happened because, firstly, Jules really doesn't need to do it. He's a very wealthy man that has is that is now a uh, a British icon that is one of the uh, music Godfathers of this country.
0: I you love know? that show. It's it's a yeah. great show. He's done so much to expose all these bands. Yeah, and,
1: absolutely, and you know. And, the spirit
0: uh, of it is fantastic.
1: So why why would he? You know, he doesn't need it. Uh, if you know, if somebody was to wave a big checkbook at him, this Julian, he's Julian. Above all, he's a great mu- a musician and a, an a even better businessman. So I'm sure he'd do it for money, but um, uh, of course, so would I, so would all of us. But um, uh, I don't think there's any chance of him doing it just for old time's sake, and um, uh. That's one of the things, and the other thing is, I don't think I could physically do a a, a squeeze tour. Uh, I don't think physically I could do it because of my state of my lungs and my now. Now with that, I can do two hour sets with jewels, but I but I know how to pace myself. But if I was going to try and create the vigor, and excitement, and um, uh, drama. And those early squeeze recordings, I need a long lie down between each show, I promise you.
0: Yeah.
1: And I wouldn't like to half-heartedly do it. There'd be no point in doing it without making it the way it should be.
0: Well, I hope that post-COVID stuff clears up because that's, the. I know a lot of people, I'm doing a separate story for a magazine about sort of the long COVID effects and um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's never going to change. There's a lot that people don't understand about it at this point.
1: Oh, it's, it's permanent damage. It is actually permanent damage. I've lost quite a lot of use in my lungs.
0: I'm sorry. No, um,
1: there's other symptoms. I've got eurythmy, which is also left over from COVID. I've also got a strange throat. As you can hear, I don't sound like a... Sound a bit more like a Dalek than a human being, and and that's once again has been left over from COVID. I was in a pretty bad way, but um, but everything else works all right, more or less. Uh, for a Well, 70- I'm
0: glad you made it. I'm glad you made it through, but that is that is pretty tough. I had it recently also, and I'm still a little hoarse from it as well. So it's you yeah. know, and I'd had I'd had I'd had all the vaxes and stuff, so you know. We so just have to move forward to for, but I'm glad you're still drumming and I'm glad you're still painting. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: It, you have a very quiet line of work and a very loud line of work. So those yeah. things would balance each other, I would think.
1: It's pretty good. I've been, let me tell you this, Mark, I've been incredibly lucky to, you know, uh, I've just had, I think I've had three more than that, four different musical careers that all have been pretty successful. And, and a lot of people don't even have one. So, you know, what have I got to complain about? Absolutely nothing. Um, good to meet you, Mark.
0: Nice meeting you. I've really loved your work and I, I listened to it a lot. So I, I appreciate it. And I was excited that you said yes. And thank you so much for, you know, spending all this time with me. And uh, have a great rest of your day. Bye, Bye. Bye. That's it for episode 45 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Gilson Lavis for sharing his incredible history in music with us. You can see and order his paintings at gilsonlavisart.uk, and you can learn more about the Jules Holland Rhythm and Blues Orchestra at julesholland.com. Then it's time for a deep dive into Lavis's squeeze work. I'd start with Cool for Cats and move forward through Argy Bargy, Eastside Story, and yes, Sweets from a Stranger. Though black coffee in bed goes on too long. Of the post-reunion albums, i have a soft spot for Frank, as well as the first side of Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity, despite the synthetic 80s production. CaroPop Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who plays drums and is digging all these drummer guests. Another great one is coming soon. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.